Romans 15 and verses 8 through 13. Romans 15, 8 through 13. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Fathers, we turn our attention to you and to your word, and we pray that Christ will be exalted among us, and that in the preaching he will be supreme, you will show us Christ by eyes of faith. Bless to us your word now, we ask in his name. Amen. Remember that the whole 14th chapter of Romans, along with the first seven verses of chapter 15, were a discourse on striving for unity and mutual acceptance in the church. The whole section is tied together by one word that occurs at the beginning and at the end. That's the word welcome. And you see that in verse 1 of chapter 14 and then in verse 7 of Romans 15, immediately preceding the text that we're considering today. In verse 7 of chapter 15, there's the concluding command to receive or to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then in verse 8, which we begin with today, there's an explanation as to how it is. If we're to receive one another in the way that Christ received us, how did he do it? And the answer is, he welcomed us by becoming a servant. And this text is also a reminder for us of whom Christ has welcomed, namely, men and women, from every nation under heaven. And this passage teaches us that Jesus Christ has secured gospel hope for people from every tribe and nation on the earth. Jesus Christ has secured gospel hope for people from every tribe and nation on earth. The outline for the sermon is in your bulletins. And the first point I want to draw out of the text is that Christ's ministry is unto the eternal benefit of Jews and Gentiles. Christ became a servant, the text says to us. And we could park right there, just stay right there on those words and stand in awe, stand in wonder at a God 
who would become flesh and dwell among his creatures. That alone, that God was willing to condescend in that way. He's the creator, we're creatures, and he became like us. And not only that, add to that the fact that when he came, he came to creatures that hated him. Creatures that had rejected him, rebelled against him, and don't want him to rule over them. But he was willing, nevertheless, to enter time and space, to take to himself a true body and live as a perfectly righteous and holy man among a people who are utterly polluted by sin. He became flesh and dwelt among the likes of us. And his willingness to do that is simply astounding. But not only did he become flesh, he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says that though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, when he came to earth, he didn't take on luxury. He didn't possess worldly riches. He didn't acquire worldly authority. No. He placed himself under and willingly submitted to the civil and religious authorities of his day, even though both, generally speaking, were corrupt. In terms of human government, Jesus had no stature on earth. In terms of worldly wealth, he was a poor man born to a poor family. And as our text says, he became a servant. He was and is God the Son the second person of the Godhead. He's worthy to be served. He's worthy to be worshipped. But, to borrow his own words, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And those many for whom he gave his life as a ransom includes Jews and Gentiles. If you still got your Bible open to our text, turn back a couple of pages to Romans 10. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, including Jews and Gentiles. And in Romans 10, verse 12, we read, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Christ came, not as a ruler, not as an earthly king, but as a humble servant. Now back in our text in Romans 15, verse 8 explains that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now that term, the circumcised, is one of uh, an assortment of biblical terms of differentiation used to distinguish between Jews and non-Jews and to refer to non-Jews as, a, as the uncircumcision. Uh, it's an ancient distinction. We can see that in the story, uh, the, the, uh, the account of David and Goliath. Remember when David came down and the armies of Israel were arrayed against the armies of the Philistines and there was Goliath and young David was incensed that Goliath was, was reviling the covenant people of God. In his, in his righteous indignation, David said, 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See how he referred to Goliath, the uncircumcised Philistine. Because any man who had not received the Abrahamic sign of circumcision was outside the covenant people. So to call someone uncircumcised was just a way of referring to them as a pagan. That's all it really means. And we find that that particular way of differentiating people groups was still in use in the New Testament. Paul utilizes that terminology in Ephesians 2. You can see it in verse 11, where Paul wrote, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul goes on from there, and we'll actually revisit those verses in just a moment. But you see that Jews, 1,000 years after David, were still using those terms to distinguish themselves from the other nations to set themselves apart from those who were not Jews according to the flesh. Now, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was of the circumcision. And the fact is, his earthly ministry was primarily to his countrymen, the Jews, first and foremost. You may remember that incident where Jesus is up in the northern reaches of the land and a Gentile woman comes to him. She's in desperate need. She's pleading with Jesus to heal her daughter because her daughter was cruelly demon-possessed. The woman wanted wanted Jesus to cast the demon out. And of course, he did that. But first, it seems that he rejects her. First, he seems to refuse. And he told her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were the focus of Jesus' personal ministry while he was on earth and when the day of Pentecost came the Holy Spirit was poured out and the New Testament church was born that congregation was entirely Jewish now some of them were foreigners who had converted to Judaism but they all came into the church through the conduit of Judaism but our text tells us that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, quote, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ's service to his countrymen was to fulfill the covenant promises given to their forefathers. Christ proved that God keeps his promises. God is faithful. And the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ confirms that Jesus is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations on earth will be blessed. Now that brings us to the fact that Christ's ministry was not just for the circumcised, but also for the Gentiles, a.k.a. the uncircumcision. Look at what verse 9 in our text goes on to say. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus' ministry to the Jews was ultimately for the benefit of both Jews and Gentiles. His redemption is effectual for all of his elect because the promises to the patriarchs were for all of his elect. 
God promised Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's Genesis 22, 18. Now when Abraham died, and Isaac inherited the promises, God's promise conveyed to him. God said to Isaac, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 26, 4. And then Jacob, who received the blessing from his father Isaac, was told by God, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 28, 14. What did God mean by all the families of the earth? What did he mean by all the nations of the earth? He meant the Gentiles. He meant the uncircumcision. And all this proves that God has and always did have one plan of salvation for one people to be brought together into one household of faith. Jesus himself confirmed this in John 10, 16. He said to his disciples, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, this, this one united flock is what Paul is celebrating in Ephesians 2, 13 through 19. Turn there with me. I said we'd go back to Ephesians 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and listen how Paul speaks of this unification of Jew and Gentile into one body. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One Savior, one household. Christ's ministry is unto the eternal benefit of Jews and Gentiles. And that flows right into our second point, which is that Christ's lordship extends to all the nations of the earth. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus didn't come to be an earthly ruler. He didn't come to depose Herod. He didn't come to lead an uprising against Pontius Pilate. He didn't come to raise an army to challenge the Roman Empire. He didn't come as a political leader at all. And he said as much when he was humbly submitting to trial by Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? And in John 18, verse 36, Jesus explained to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Many Jews 
in Jesus' day and in the days leading up to his coming were expecting and waiting for a Messiah who would be a political deliverer, one who would rise up and defeat Rome and establish and restore an Israelite monarchy. And the people that expected and wanted that were sorely disappointed. But what they couldn't see is that Messiah came to do something far greater than that. Yes, when Jesus comes again, then he will cast down all the rulers of the earth. He'll overthrow kings and nations. Then he will inaugurate his eternal kingdom of glory. But right now, in this present age, today, he's building his church. And that's more glorious than any earthly nation or empire. Might not seem that way, but it is. And not only that, Consider this, most of you are members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only institution in the world that's going to last forever, that will carry on into the age to come. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, as the old song goes. Nations rise and fall. Empires expand, decline, disintegrate, but Christ's church will never perish. And there's no one on earth who can stop the advance of his kingdom. His kingdom of grace, which is embodied in his church. Many people have opposed the Lord Jesus. They've tried to suppress, they've tried to extinguish the church, but they've all failed, and they all will fail to the end of the age. What sinful man fails to perceive, simply put, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth is his by right. All people on earth, including all leaders, kings, presidents, Prime ministers, chancellors, sheikhs, ayatollahs, chairmen, whatever their exalted titles may be, all people owe allegiance and submission to King Jesus. He is the Lord of the nations. At present, he's exercising his lordship through his church, and his church is made of Jews and Gentiles. His church, in other words, is universal. The Messiah is not Lord of just one nation. He's Lord of all nations. And that's what Paul is laboring to prove here as he spouts off citation after citation from the Old Testament in verses 9 through 12 of our text. The word Gentiles appears six times just in those four verses. And it contains four citations from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And note, the Apostle, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is proving that God's plan of redemption was always global in scope. As William Plummer put it, the manifest object of the Apostle in citing these verses is to show from the writings of the prophets that the Gentiles were always contemplated as a component part of Messiah's kingdom. 
The Hebrew Bible is made up of three general sections known to the Jews as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Three categories of Old Testament scripture in the Hebrew Bibles, in the Hebrew Bible. And Paul quotes from all three of those in these citations that he gives in Romans 15. He does that to demonstrate how pervasive the concept is. It's in the law, it's in the prophets, it's in the, it's in the writings too. The lordship of the seed of Abraham was never an isolated provincial government. The God of Abraham is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Not only does he possess heaven and earth, he is the creator of heaven and earth, and he gives the nations to his anointed. They are all Christ's inheritance. Now you look at world events, and you might say, I don't see it. Well, that's true. Even the writer of the Hebrews said, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But one day we will. One day we will. In the meantime, though, there are men and women, children all over the world who have come to know and serve the King of Kings. They are glorifying God for his mercy now. They are rejoicing along with the whole company of God's people now. They are extolling the Lord Jesus Christ. He is ruling them, and they have put their hope in him. Look with me again at verse 12. Again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. Christ's lordship extends to all the nations of the earth, and he is currently exercising his lordship by building his church. And then our final point is that Christ's spirit works hope, joy, and peace in his people. Hope, joy, and peace. God gives us these things through Christ. While I was in seminary, I came to class one morning uh, after, immediately it was the morning after a general election. And many of us in the class were rather distraught about the outcome of that election. No one was saying much, and I remember the professor was up front just taking roll, and we were all pretty quiet, but then finally somebody asked him about the situation. And I hope I never forget what he said. Somebody spoke up and this wise professor said to us with a, with a confident, Smile on his face, slight shake of his head. King Jesus was still on his throne. And there are more people in his kingdom today than there were yesterday. Our teacher helped us refocus. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, and that's where he was pointing our eyes as well. Nations rise, nations fall but Christ's church will never perish. It will continue to grow. And he gave us that reminder and it gave us all, I think, a sense of peace despite short-term disappointment. In Christ, our King, of whom that professor reminded us, we had a renewed sense of hope regardless of the political outlook or the societal outlook. <clears throat> our text 
in Romans, verse 13 there, concludes with what most commentators see as both a wish and a prayer. I think of it as a benediction, and in fact, I'm going to use it as the benediction at the close of our service today. It is, first of all, a kind of prayer offered up to, as the text puts it, the God of hope. God alone is the source and giver of hope. And please understand that in the scriptural sense of the word, hope is a settled assurance about something that will be. It's not wishful thinking about something that may or may not come to pass. Now, we use the word hope in that sense all the time when we say things like, I hope we get some rain this week, or I hope my father's surgery goes well, things like that. And there's nothing wrong with using the word hope in that sense. We all understand uh, the sense in which it's being used when we say things like that. But it's also very important that you know that the Bible doesn't generally use the word hope in that way. Biblical hope is closely related to faith, and we see that in Hebrews 11.1, words that you know very well, I'm sure. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. You got those two parallel statements, and they, they bring out the nature of biblical gospel hope. It's not a wishing, but it's an assurance and a conviction, because Christian hope comes from God, and it's anchored in Him. It's an anchor that doesn't go down into the depths of the ocean. It's an anchor that goes up into the holy place, it holds us secure. Paul's prayer in verse 13 is that God himself would fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And again, just like we have to understand hope in the biblical sense, let's understand both joy and peace in a biblical sense, in a gospel sense. First of all, both of them are fruit of the Spirit, aren't they? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and it goes on. But right together and right up at the top of the list in Fruit of the Spirit, you've got joy and peace right there. The same Spirit, the Spirit who breathed new life into you in the first place. It continues to work in you, continues to work in me by bringing forth those attributes, all those things that collectively are called Fruit of the Spirit and that include joy and peace. They're part of the very essence of Christ's kingdom. If you look back again at Romans 14, as Paul builds his argument for unity in the church, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul gives the admonition, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice That's given as a command, isn't it? But it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who enables us to rejoice. Joy is a mark of the Christian. Just a few verses after that in Philippians 4, the topic of peace is addressed. In one of the most familiar scriptures, references to Christian peace, and it's connected to prayer. 
specifically a prayerful rejection of anxiety. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. The God of hope is able to fill you with peace, with his peace. Surpasses all understanding, the scripture tells us. The world can't explain it. And it's not something we just muster up inside ourselves. We don't do it. He does it. It's not just some kind of positive thinking or a look on the bright side kind of thing. This is the peace of God and it's available to everyone who believes. All of this, joy and peace and believing, abundant hope, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Joy in God and peace of conscience arising from a sense of our justification in Christ is what Paul wrote of back in Romans 5. Turn there, turn there with me, Romans 5. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The Spirit of Christ works hope, joy, and peace in his people. So we've seen in this text that Jesus Christ has secured gospel hope for people from every tribe and nation on earth. Just a few words of application as we come to a close. Number one, and this takes us back to chapter 14 again, but uh, one way we apply this passage is be at peace, brothers and sisters, with one another. Be at peace with one another. All of us who are in Christ have peace with God. This is a present blessing. We enjoy it now. So if God has condescended to make peace with us, shouldn't we be at peace with one another? Shouldn't we strive to preserve the peace of the church? I urge you to examine yourselves in this matter. And if you find, as you search your own heart, that you're somehow unwilling to be at peace with a brother or a sister, you need to repent of that. Consider those sobering words of Jesus. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that doesn't mean that God forgives us because we've forgiven others. What it means is that if you won't forgive others, you haven't understood the gospel. It means you're being self-righteous and ungrateful and you should give serious thought as to whether or not you yourself have truly come to repentance and saving faith. Be at peace with one another. Number two, be at peace in yourself. Be at peace in yourself. Have peace. Have, through the power of the Spirit, have quietness in your soul. Our text says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
And that's not a pie-in-the-sky sentiment. That's an apostolic benediction kind of prayer intended for all who have put their trust in Christ. I know that some of you struggle with anxiety. And as your friend, as your brother, and as your pastor, I don't want you to. I want you to have peace. So pray this prayer for yourself. Pray Romans 15, 13 for yourself. Ask God to give you that peace that surpasses all comprehension. Ask him to give you a peace that will expel anxiety. Go to God in prayer and ask him to show you your own heart, to show you what are the roots of your anxiety. Ask him to help you to give up those things to him. Meditate frequently on Philippians 4, 6, and 7 and other passages that speak to this this problem, this, this pandemic of anxiety and ask him to help you give those things up. There's power in the word. There really is. There's power in the word. There's power in the Holy Spirit. Only through the word and the spirit will you get real help for anxiety. Third, God has one people and one plan to save them all. Consider again the words of Christ. He was speaking to the 12, and of course the 12 were of the circumcision. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Consider the song that the Apostle John heard the host of heaven singing to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. No one, Jew or Gentile, comes to the Father except through Christ. And finally, number four, give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give him glory. That's why you were created, to glorify and enjoy God. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Much of the world does not acknowledge him, but all people ought to. And someday everyone will. Matthew Henry, commenting on verse 8 of the text we've been considering, wrote as follows. Understanding by the promises made to the fathers, the whole covenant of grace darkly administered under the Old Testament and brought to clearer light now under the gospel. It was Christ's great errand to confirm that covenant. And he confirmed it by shedding the blood of the covenant. For you, for me. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, Lord of lords, King of kings. We bow before you. We bow before him. We pray that you'll bless and apply this word to our hearts. Lord, give us that hope and that joy and that peace that only your spirit can give. And let Christ receive the glory for it. And we pray in his name. Amen.